Hello Darksiders, I hope you're all well. Before we get into today's story, I'd just like to thank you all so much for your patience and support, and to those of you that have reached out with messages, as Darkseid moves, hopefully only temporarily, into a fortnightly slot. You are all so lovely. I must tell you that today's story deals with a vicious crime against a woman. It is definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion is advised. So, with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to a suburb of Kansas City, United States. Kansas City is divided down the middle by a state border. To the east, Missouri, and to the west, Kansas. Our story takes us to the suburb of Overland Park, which lies within the state of Kansas. With a population of over 200,000 people, Overland Park was named as the best place to raise a family in Kansas by livability. However, in 2007, one family was going to find out that this approval rating did not apply to them. 18-year-old Kelsey Smith had just graduated from Shawnee Mission West High School. She was looking forward to a lazy, long summer with her boyfriend John before she headed for Kansas State University in the fall, where she was going to play the clarinet in the university's marching band. Kelsey was an extremely popular girl, and there was a never-ending stream of friends at her home that she shared with her parents, Greg and Missy Smith, her sister Lindsay, and her brother Michael. Being so popular, Kelsey was never off her mobile phone, and her parents were constantly having to update her package as she was forever running out of data. It was Saturday the 2nd of June 2007, and Kelsey had plans to go on a date with John that evening. It was their six-month anniversary of being together, and Kelsey decided she wanted to buy John a gift to celebrate this milestone in their relationship. Kelsey's mum, Missy, was out of state and making her way home when Kelsey called her at 7pm to tell her that she may not be home when she returned as she was at their local Target store buying a gift for John. She told her mum that she loved her and she would see her when she got home. As Missy drove, she mused over how proud she was of all of her children, how strong their family bond was, and how her children always made sure that she knew of their whereabouts. But this was something that Greg and Missy had instilled into their children from a very young age. But little did Missy know at this point that she had just had her last conversation ever with her daughter. For what was already unfurling at the Target store that Kelsey had gone to would rip a family apart, shock a nation, and send the Smith family into a fight that would tackle head-on one of the largest corporations in America and change the way law enforcement is conducted in the United States today. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. 
So, where was Kelsey? What had happened to her at the Target store? Hmm. Let's find out. She wasn't answering text messages. She wasn't answering phone calls. That was an immediate cause for concern that something's up. The distance from Target to the Smith's house, probably an eight-minute drive. It didn't take them long to realize that something's not right. Kelsey should have been home by 7.15pm, at the latest. She was supposed to be meeting John, whom lived close by, at his house at 7.30pm. But when 7.30 came and went with no sign of Kelsey, as you've just heard, the family started calling her mobile phone. But Kelsey didn't answer, which was very unlike her. So, at 8pm, they called John, who told them that she hadn't shown up at his house and he'd been trying to call her also, to no avail. Even though there was only a one-hour time frame in which no one had heard from Kelsey, Missy and Greg instinctively knew something was wrong. Kelsey was never without her phone and never off her phone. So for her not to answer calls from her family and boyfriend for an hour, yeah, this was not like Kelsey at all. They called all her friends, but no one had seen her. So they called all the local hospitals, but no one by Kelsey's description or name had been admitted. And still, all calls to Kelsey were going unanswered. By now, Missy and Greg were beside themselves with worry. Where was Kelsey? Why wasn't she answering her phone? Even though it had only been an hour since anyone had last spoken with Kelsey, Greg decided to do something that he swore he would never do. You see, Greg used to be a law enforcement officer before he'd changed careers to become a teacher. He had always vowed that he wouldn't use his personal connections in the force for his own gain. However, he knew if he were to call the police at this point, they wouldn't start a search immediately, or possibly even take Kelsey's disappearance as serious, as she had only been missing for an hour, and, at 18, she wasn't a minor. But, needs must, and in his heart of hearts, he knew that he couldn't afford to waste any more time. And so he broke his golden rule and called some of his former colleagues. He pressed upon them that it was not like his daughter to go radio silent and requested them to mobilise. His former colleagues knew Greg and they knew he would not be making this request if it wasn't absolutely necessary. And so the search for Kelsey began rather quickly. Police are searching for an 18-year-old girl who was abducted on Saturday. The police spoke to everyone whom had had contact with Kelsey on that day, questioning their whereabouts between 7 and 8 p.m. But every one of them, including her boyfriend John, all had attestable alibis within that time frame. Word quickly spread around the neighbourhood, about Kelsey's disappearance, and soon the local community was out in mass to look for her, of which much of the search group was made up of Kelsey's school friends and their families. This is how popular she was. 
News reporters were also soon on the scene and began streaming the search for Kelsey live across the Sunflower State. Within hours, the search party had swelled to several hundred people and these volunteers soon became known as Kelsey's army. But still, there was no sign of Kelsey or her car. And then... Hours later, they find the car across the street from the Target, and all of her stuff is in there, her purchases, her purse, but she's not there. Greg and Missy took the finding of the car as a positive sign, and with renewed hope and vigour, they moved the search party to the area around the Target store and began combing the streets and back alleys. If her car was still in the vicinity of the Target, she too must be close by. But the police were not quite as optimistic as the Smiths. With all Kelsey's purchases from Target still in the car, as well as her purse, they knew from experience that this didn't usually add up to a positive outcome. Plus, the police soon realised that the only thing missing from the car, other than Kelsey, was also her mobile phone and her ATM card. If Kelsey still had her phone on her, why hadn't she made contact with anyone or answered calls? It really wasn't painting an encouraging picture to the police, and so a forensics team were called in to go through Kelsey's car with a fine-toothed comb. In addition, realising the potential magnitude of this disappearance, they called in the FBI. John was with the Smiths when the police informed them that Kelsey's ATM card and mobile phone were also missing, and John remembered a story that his uncle had told him. His uncle worked for Sprint, the third largest mobile phone provider in the US, and recently Sprint had used pinging to track the last known location of a phone belonging to a woman whose car had been stolen, and they'd been able to locate the phone, and thus the car, and the perpetrator. If they contacted Kelsey's provider, they could ping her phone and find out where she was. Missy and Greg had never heard of pinging before, but they were willing to try anything. Kelsey's mobile provider was Verizon, the second largest mobile phone provider in the USA, and they wasted no time in contacting them. But... I remember calling them numerous times and pleading with them to please ping this phone. My child is missing. Help me find her. I couldn't get them to understand. This isn't just a runaway. This needs to be done and it needs to be done now. The Smiths were so frustrated with Verizon for not assisting them. But as it was approaching midnight and the search party was starting to thin out as people became tired, the police advised that they should go home and get some rest. They'd call the family immediately if anything surfaced, and also that they'd try Verizon again in the morning, when they could hopefully speak to someone a little higher up the chain. They really didn't want to leave the search party, but they also had Lindsay and Michael at home to look after, and so they reluctantly agreed to go home. But they had a fitful night. Well, the whole family did, as I'm sure you can imagine. 
When your child is missing, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't do anything because you don't know if they're eating, you don't know if they're sleeping. As soon as the sun was up on the following morning, Kelsey's army were out again at Target, combing and searching the area. Missy and Greg, however, spent most of the day on the phone to Verizon, desperately trying to get them to ping Kelsey's phone. Even the police reached out to Verizon, but they too had no luck with them. Verizon simply said that they couldn't ping the phone. Kelsey's army searched all day, but no further evidence or sightings materialised. And so the search area kept expanding further and further out from the Target store. But still, no new information was coming to light. With the search coming up fruitless, the police began trolling through the CCTV footage from Target. And what it revealed was baffling. A white sedan is seen driving into the parking lot at 6.52pm. A dark-haired woman, assumed to be in her mid-forties, alights from the car and heads into the store. At 6.54pm, a dark-coloured pickup truck pulls into the lot, and a dark-haired white man, assumed to be in his twenties, alights and heads into the store. At 6.55pm, Kelsey is seen pulling into the lot, and then also heading into the store. Footage from inside the store shows Kelsey heading towards the checkout counter at 7.06pm to purchase her goods. At the same time, the dark-haired white man walks past Kelsey and heads out to his truck, without making any purchases. At 7.10pm, Kelsey leaves the store, heads to a car, opens the driver door, throws in her purchases, and then gets into the driver's side, and shortly after, her car is seen exiting the parking lot. So, for all intents and purpose, it seems Kelsey had left the Target parking lot, but somehow never made it home. Where had she gone after leaving Target? The police searched the CCTV footage from cameras that were along what would have been her route home. But this was 2007. Whilst most large stores had CCTV cameras outside their premises, there wasn't, at this point in time, many cameras on roadways, meaning that soon they lost track of Kelsey's car shortly after leaving the Target parking lot. With the ground search bearing no fruit, and Verizon playing hardball, and the CCTV footage not showing anything untoward, the police were drawing blanks, and the investigation was heading towards stalling. But something just wasn't sitting right with the police. Whilst Kelsey's car and the white sedan had both left the parking lot, one vehicle hadn't, long after the store had shut. The black pickup truck, which they'd seen the dark-haired man in his twenties return to at 7.06pm. They trawled through the footage for hours and finally discovered that the black pickup truck didn't actually leave the store parking lot until 9.29pm some two and a half hours after the man had left the store and headed towards his truck. 
had this man been sat in his truck for all that time? Or had they missed something in the footage? So, they went back to the CCTV footage from the Target parking lot. The footage was very grainy, and it also jumped, missing fractions of seconds in the scenes. So, the police slowed the footage down and zoomed in, going through the footage frame by frame. And sure enough, as they scanned each frame meticulously, a different picture began to emerge. A grainy figure can be seen running up to Kelsey's car as she opened the driver's side door. He pushes her inside the car and jumps in after her. The car leaves the parking lot a few minutes later. The whole scene had literally happened in the blink of an eye. So fast, in fact, that it wasn't discernible on the footage until the frames were slowed down. And the figure that pushed Kelsey into her car, whilst grainy in the footage, was, unmistakably, the same dark-haired white man that had left the store at 7.06pm, four minutes before Kelsey. The same man that had appeared to return to his black pickup truck when he left the store. The very truck that didn't leave the lot for another two and a half hours. Finally, the police had a suspect. But who on earth was he? They compared the CCTV footage to composites they had in their database. But there was no matches. So the police decided to appeal to the public for help. They held a press conference and aired close-up images of the white man in the black shorts. Greg and Missy were interviewed by the media at the press conference, and through racking sobs, they begged for any information that could help them find Kelsey, even offering a $30,000 reward. And now that the suspect's face was being transmitted across every network and every news channel in the state, the police could but wait for the public to provide the desperately needed leads. And whilst the police waited for a member of the public to recognise the man from the CCTV, Greg and Missy battled on and on with Verizon, pleading, rationalising and even begging them to ping Kelsey's phone. But they dogmatically refused. They'd finally stopped saying they couldn't ping phones and instead cited that to do so was a breach of the Communications Act, 1934, an act that organised the federal regulation of telephone, telegraph and radio communications. And Section 222 of the Act states that telecommunication carriers are prohibited from disclosing customer information, except as required by law and there was no law in place to require the release of such information. However, there is an exception to this section, an exception for disclosing the location of a mobile user to medical, public safety or law enforcement services, where the user has called for an emergency service. So, in other words, 
a mobile provider can release the location information of a mobile phone so long as the user of the phone has called for emergency services. And Kelsey, as the user of the mobile phone, had obviously not called for emergency services. It seemed like their hands were tied by this archaic law that came into effect some 50-plus years before mobile phones were even a thing. Out of sheer desperation, the Smiths started trolling through this antiquated and defunct act to see if there was any way around this legislation that would allow them to force Verizon to ping the phone. And... Bingo. They found it. Buried deep in the text, another exception to the act, whereby telecommunication information can be disclosed to a government agency when that agency has appropriate authority under Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. And when they researched Title III, they discovered that the title requires federal, state and other government officials to obtain judicial authorization for intercepting wire, oral and electronic communications. Just to clarify that legalese, the Smiths themselves couldn't get Verizon to ping Kelsey's phone under the Communications Act. But a government agency with the authorization of a judge can. And in the United States, law enforcement operates primarily through government police agencies. Thus, it is a sector of a government agency. All they had to do was ask the police to request a judge to authorise the release of the location information of Kelsey's phone, and then they could obtain it from Verizon. That was it. As easy as that. But, if it were that easy, why did Verizon not tell them this is how they could obtain the information in the first place? Hmm. Of course. The Smiths wasted no time in asking the police to make this request to a judge. And the police promptly did just that. And... Yeah, this is when they found out just why Verizon had not informed them that this was the route they needed to take in order to obtain the information. When Verizon rolled out its E911 programme, which is the part of the 911 system that automatically ties a location to a 911 call. Verizon decided to cut costs. They went with the cheap option. And the option that they went with could source a location when a call was made to 911, but it couldn't send a signal to the phone and have the phone react. Huh. Let's get this straight. Sprint, the third largest provider in the USA, had purchased the expensive E911 system and thus was able to ping the phone of a woman whose car had been stolen. But Verizon, the second largest mobile phone provider in the US, had gone cheap and therefore did not have the capability to ping a phone of an abducted, potentially murdered girl. Huh. Beggar's belief. The Smiths and the police were furious. 
instead of telling them the truth from the start. Verizon had sent them on a wild goose chase, wasting precious time in finding Kelsey, purely in order to cover up their own money-grubbing, penny-pinching E911 system. <clears throat> However, what Verizon could do was look at past locations whereby Kelsey's phone had interacted with their network. This probably wouldn't tell the police where Kelsey's phone was, at present, but it would tell them where she'd been, and if they had her past locations, they maybe could piece together the route that Kelsey's abductor had taken her on. And so, four days after Kelsey's disappearance, Verizon finally agreed to assist. Yes, you heard that right. It took four whole days for Verizon to get off their behinds and help. After finally agreeing to help, an FBI agent got onto the phone to Verizon. It was an FBI agent on the phone with a Verizon technician, finally, who explained to them, look, this is what we need. We need to know where the location of the phone is. Eventually, Verizon sent a guy out to the last tower that her phone had contacted and was able to narrow the pie wedge of a search down to an area where cell phones can be found. And now that Verizon were finally cooperating and helping them in their search. We cannot get our cell phone provider to release her location information. Once they did, her body was found in 45 minutes. They had finally found Kelsey. She was in a wooded area near Longview Lake in Missouri, just 20 miles from where she'd been abducted. For four days, the Smith family had suffered unadulterated purgatory, not knowing where Kelsey was. And now it had come to an end, within 45 minutes of Verizon releasing the location information of Kelsey's phone to the FBI. Greg and Missy harboured feelings of relief and devastation, washing over them in waves. Relief that their baby girl had been found, and complete devastation that they now knew she would never be coming home again. Now Kelsey had been found, they needed to find her attacker. They needed justice for Kelsey. But... What the Smiths didn't know at this point in time, what the police were keeping to themselves, was that they had their eye on a suspect. Debbie Miguez had been potting around the house on June 4th, just two days after Kelsey's abduction. She had the TV on in the background as she was doing some housework. When something on the TV caught her attention... It was the Kelsey Smith press conference. It piqued her attention because Overland Park was just 12 miles from where she lived in Olathe, Kansas. And as she watched the Target CCTV footage play out on her TV screen, she let out a chuckle. The dark-haired white man in his 20s wearing a white t-shirt and black shorts. Well, it looked just like her next-door neighbour. The resemblance was uncanny. However, her neighbour was such a nice, helpful, friendly man that she knew it couldn't be him. And so she shrugged it off and continued about her housework. When her husband, Cameron, came home from work that day, 
she mentioned the resemblance of the man on the surveillance footage to him. Intrigued, he turned on the evening news. And sure enough, his wife was right. The man caught on CCTV did look like their next-door neighbour. And they both chuckled at the likeness and agreed that there was no way it could be him. Their neighbour was far too congenial to have committed such a heinous act. However, they soon stopped laughing when the screen moved on to the next image of the vehicle driven by the potential suspect, the black pickup truck, the exact truck that their next-door neighbour drove. And Cameron picked up the phone and dialed the police. Now, the police were receiving thousands of leads from the public, so they were looking into the background of each lead before moving to interview potential suspects. And so, they looked into Cameron Miguez's next-door neighbour, one Edwin Hall. When they pulled up his driver's licence, Hall was a dead ringer for the man in the Target CCTV footage. And yes, he was the owner of a black pickup truck. But the police just weren't convinced this man was the person they were looking for. Why, I hear you ask? Because by now, the police had received the preliminary inspection of Kelsey's body, and her death had been particularly brutal. She had been raped, sodomized, beaten, and strangled to death using a ligature. The abduction had been executed so precisely in broad daylight in a busy parking lot, capturing Kelsey in the blink of an eye, that whomever had done this knew exactly what they were doing. It had all the M.O. of a serial killer. And, well, this just didn't fit the information they found in their records for Hall. Hall was 26 years old and lived in a quiet neighbourhood with his wife and four-year-old son. And he had no adult criminal record. He did have a juvenile record for assault. But the record was so old that they couldn't ascertain what the assault was for. But in the 11 years since that assault charge, there was absolutely nothing in his record. In fact, he seemed to be a model citizen. But a lead is a lead, and so, whilst investigators were out at Longview Lake on the morning of June 6th searching for Kelsey's body, FBI agents went to Hall's house to speak with him. And they found nothing in Hall's demeanour or story that aroused their suspicions. Hall said he had been home between 7 and 8 p.m. looking after his son whilst his wife had run an errand. His wife wasn't currently home to vouch for his story, but Hall said she'd be back at 7 p.m. that evening, and, as they had no plans that evening, the FBI could stop by any time after 7 to speak to her. The FBI also spoke to Hall's neighbours, whom attested that Hall was a helpful member of their community a great friend and a really personable guy whom doted on his son. Satisfied that they had the wrong man, the FBI left. By now, forensics had notified the police that they had managed to lift fingerprints that didn't match Kelsey's from the steering wheel of her car. 
the prints were put through their database. And... No matches. During the four days since Kelsey had disappeared, the FBI had interviewed many, many potential leads. But all either had verifiable alibis or looked nothing like the man in the CCTV footage. The one and only person that they had interviewed that resembled the man in the footage was Edwin Hall. And so, despite Hall appearing to be a model citizen, they kept coming back to him time and time again. So, they decided to dig a little deeper into Hall. And they found his MySpace page, in which he described himself as a sweet, troubled soul. And he listed his hobbies as eating small children and harming small animals. Yikes. And suddenly, Edwin Hall didn't quite seem like the model citizen after all. A little more digging later, and they discovered that Hall had been adopted at the age of seven by Carol and Don Hall of Emporia, Kansas. The FBI reached out to the Hall family to glean more information on what Edwin Hall was like as a child. By the end of their phone call, the FBI's perception of Edwin Hall had morphed from model citizen wavering around the midsection of their suspect list to a nefarious, duplicitous character sitting at the very top of their list. From day one, the Hall family had experienced numerous issues with Edwin. He was prone to dark moods and volatile explosive reactions and outbursts. He'd been in trouble numerous times at school and narrowly missed an assault charge after smashing a baseball bat over another child's head. The family had struggled on for years, tiptoeing around Hall's unpredictable temper. But, eventually, when he was fifteen, an incident occurred that was the straw that broke the camel's back. He had attacked his sister with a knife, and this was the assault charge he'd received when he was fifteen. After the attack, the Hall family had returned Edwin to state custody, where he remained until he aged out of the system at the age of 18. There were too many red flags for the FBI not to go back out to Hall's house and bring him in for questioning. Even though they knew that Hall's wife wouldn't be home until 7pm, according to what he had told them, they decided they needed to move quickly. And so, at 6pm, they arrived at the Hall residence. And... Thank goodness they did, for not only was Hall's wife already home, but they literally caught the family piling cases into the pickup truck, about to head out on a supposed vacation. Yeah, Hall was arrested on the spot. Whilst Hall was taken to the station, a forensics team was sent to his house to scour it. At the station, Hall denied having been at the Target store that day, admitting only that the man in the CCTV footage did resemble him, but it wasn't him. 
However, in another room, Paul's wife was being interviewed also, and her story wasn't quite matching that of her husband's. He hadn't been home between 7 and 8pm on June 2nd. He'd actually popped out to do some errands. On being told that his wife had just thrown him under a bus, Hall changed his story and said that he had been at Target, but he said he hadn't spoken to Kelsey. However, when his fingerprints were put through their database, yeah, it came up as a match for those found on Kelsey's steering wheel. On being presented with this information, Hall hung his head as the police charged him. When Greg and Missy were informed that a suspect had been charged with Kelsey's murder, they wept with relief. Kelsey had been found only that morning after four days of absolute torture, and they didn't think they could have gone through any more days of anguish waiting for the suspect to be caught. They were so grateful to the police. Hall was arraigned the very next day, June 7th, on charges of first-degree murder and aggravated kidnapping. He was held on a $5 million bail. He was now looking at a minimum sentence of 25 years to life in prison for the murder charge and more than 12 years for aggravated kidnapping, if convicted. And, on August 1st, Hall pled not guilty at the Johnson County Grand Jury on the charges of murder, rape and aggravated sodomy. Yeah, you heard that right. Despite his fingerprints being found on the steering wheel of Kelsey's car and his images in the CCTV footage, he pled not guilty. (laughs) Unbelievable. But... You'll be glad to hear that the depraved dung heap was indicted on all charges. The severity of the charges now meant that Hall was eligible for the death penalty, of which the district attorney decided to seek. Hall's trial was set for July 23, 2008, almost 14 months after Kelsey disappeared. And as this date approached, forensic evidence found when the search was conducted of Hall's house on the day he was arrested, finally came back from the lab. And Kelsey's DNA was found on the inside of the zipper flap of Hall's jeans and on his left shoe. The chance that the DNA was anyone but Kelsey's was one in over 280 billion. And realising now that there was an insurmountable amount of evidence stacked against him, Hall knew that he was banged to rights and the death penalty was now a definite and real possibility. And on July 23rd, Hall's trial commenced. But... A young woman kidnapped, raped and murdered. It was a case that gripped the metro. Tonight, a guilty plea in her murder. Edwin Hall pleaded guilty to kidnapping, rape and murder. He'll spend the rest of his life in prison with no chance of parole. He will not face the death penalty. Hall has also waived his right to any appeals. Yes, you heard that correctly. Hall was convicted, 
but the death penalty was taken off the table. Why, I hear you ask? Because that contemptible cowardly caitiff asked for a plea deal. He would change his plea to guilty if the death penalty was taken off the table. And the district attorney accepted his plea. Oh, I hate plea deals. Kelsey's family read out their witness impact statements after the conviction was read. Tears flowed in the packed courtroom today as memories of Kelsey came pouring out. I miss my Kelsey. I miss her laughter, her smile, her loudness. I miss my baby girl. People go and live amongst others of this kind in a steel jungle. You may find rather than being the predator, he is now the prey. But the only sympathy the Smiths have is for Hall's young son. My only satisfaction is knowing that you'll forever spend the rest of your life behind his bars. Never will you get to see the kind of man your son could have become. Forever he will have to live the consequences with the consequences you chose and made for him. I will continue to pray for God to protect that little boy. He is going to need it. There were also words of apology from Edwin Hall himself. I'm so, so sorry for what I've done. That's it. That's all I can say. That's it. That is all he had to say. What an abhorrent festering pustule. As vexing as plea deals can be, the Smith family actually welcomed the deal. Their family had been through enough in the past year, and a plea deal saved them all from a lengthy trial, with the horrific details of Kelsey's death being ruminated over and over again. However, with no trial, this also meant that Hall wouldn't be cross-examined, wouldn't be asked why he had done this horrible thing to their beautiful daughter. And trust me, Darksiders, she was a stunner. She could have been a model. Throughout all his questioning during his interrogation, Hall had only alluded to the fact that he had never known Kelsey. He just saw her and liked the look of her. That's it. Anyone could have been his target that day. Kelsey just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he found her attractive. And it was this not knowing that was making it so hard for the Smith family to move on after the trial was over. It's not something that you get over. You go through it for the rest of your life. Um, we will move forward, not on. People keep saying, when will you move on? We'll never move on. We just keep moving forward. And so the Smiths tried slowly to move forward but neither Missy nor Greg could shake their anger at the four days of utter hell they were made to suffer at not knowing where Kelsey was. All because Verizon wouldn't help them. Oh, they didn't blame Verizon for her death, no. They blamed Verizon for forcing them to endure the worst four days of their lives. Trying to get the phone company to release Kelsey's Cell phone locations was one of the most frustrating thing I have ever been through. And we just couldn't get him to do it. Back in July of 2007, Missy 
had actually asked Verizon to meet with her to discuss their failings in Kelsey's case. At the meeting were Missy and Greg, the Verizon president for the Kansas and Missouri region, and three lawyers appointed by Verizon. The lawyers informed the Smiths that they had used incorrect terminology when requesting their help, and therefore it was their misnomer that had led to the delay in providing the information, and Verizon was not culpable. And what was that incorrect terminology that they used? It was ping. They'd asked Verizon to ping Kelsey's phone, and this was not a term that they used. They should have used the term triangulation. Now, when I read this, it really made me sit up and take notice. You see, and I'm really going to age myself here, but back in the early noughties, I worked for a telecommunications company in Massachusetts. Many such companies were sprouting up in those years, as the industry had recently been deregulated, and I remember the term ping emerging in the industry around that time. There are two ways a cellular network provider can locate a phone connected to their network, either through pinging or triangulation. Pinging is a digital process, and triangulation is an analogue process. The first cell phones were analogue, but these came under much scrutiny, as the calls were often of poor quality and were easy to intercept. This was because analogue mobiles often used the same frequency channel when calls were made. So, for those of you that had cell phones back in the analogue era, you must remember trying to make a call only to hear some random stranger's conversation. I certainly did. I always seemed to pick up my next-door neighbour talking to her daughter on her phone about her hemorrhoid problem. <laughs> and so, from the mid-90s onwards, mobile phone companies started moving over to digital. And, not to bore you with all the technical mumbo-jumbo, but... Basically, digital phones operate on a much higher frequency, and this higher frequency allows for more robust encryption and error-correcting codes to be installed. Thus, calls are much clearer, and also nearly impossible to intercept. Apologies for giving you an intro class on analogue versus digital, but it is actually quite pertinent to what happens next. So, Missy and Greg have just been told by the lawyers that they had used the wrong term to request data location information. They should have used triangulation instead of ping. And as you know from my little intro class, pinging is a term applied to digital phones and triangulation is for analogue phones. Well, Kelsey had a digital phone. And furthermore... Just seven months after Kelsey was abducted, Verizon got rid of their analogue network altogether, and in fact had been promoting digital phones for some years, with the view of moving purely over to digital. So, in fact, the Smiths had used the correct term when they'd contacted Verizon. But the Smiths hadn't known this either when they were in their meeting with Verizon 
but what they did know was that Verizon were playing with semantics in order to justify their incompetence. And so resolute of this belief, the Smiths told Verizon to go back and check their protocols to see what was broken, to see where they'd failed Kelsey in her hour of need. As the Smiths left the meeting, they told the Verizon fat cats that she was expecting an update from them soon. And so they went away, more frustrated than ever. But months later, the Smiths had still not had any communication from Verizon. Clearly, they thought if they stayed quiet, the Smiths would fade into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't have a good measure of the Smiths at all, did they? So, having not heard from Verizon, Missy called them. It turns out that the president whom had met with them had now left the company, and so Missy was put through to an administrative secretary, whom, after keeping them on hold while she spoke with the lawyers, returned to Missy and told her. She said to me that the lawyers told her to tell me they found their protocol to be adequate. Huh. Well, if their actions when Kelsey went missing were deemed as adequate... I'd hate to see what inadequate would qualify as. And their frustration with Verizon, with the hell that they had endured for those four days of not knowing where Kelsey was, boiled over until... Afterwards, Greg and I talked about it, and I said, this needs to change. And Greg couldn't agree more. As I mentioned before, Greg had been in law enforcement before changing careers and during his years as part of Kansas' finest, he had made contacts and friendships along the way, and not just with other law enforcement personnel. He knew several state law influencers and legal teams, and so he reached out to his contacts and asked them for help. Now, you know how almost every week I tell you that the hero whom was trying to effect change had to beat on many doors and shout louder and louder before they were heard. Well, that didn't happen for the Smiths. Because Greg, through his contacts, was able to access the direct law influences in Kansas, he very quickly reached the ears of the lawmakers. And each and every law influencer or maker that he spoke to, that he told of Kelsey's story, of their four days of hell brought about by Verizon's ineptitude. Well, it didn't fail to leave a lasting impression and tear-filled eyes with each and every regaling. And, in addition, everyone he spoke to wholly supported the action Greg and Missy wanted to take. And so, working with a legal team, they created a bill that would amend that archaic relic of a law, the Communications Act of 1934. They created the Kelsey Smith Act. The Kelsey Smith Act is a law that when someone goes missing or their life is in danger, the cell phone company must release this information to law enforcement. And in early 2009, the bill was drafted and was ready to be presented in the State House and Senate. Greg and Missy were allowed to present their case for the bill to the House. 
If Verizon had acted in a more responsive manner, we probably would not be here today asking for this legislation. I fully understand that no company can be perfect. I understand that employees are human and that mistakes will be made. That is just part of being human. I believe that this legislation will reduce those errors. The agony of not knowing what has happened to your daughter, where she is for four days, not knowing in what condition she is, what's happened to her, is indescribable. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. The refusal of a cell phone company to cooperate with a simple request that could have alleviated days of anguish, countless man hours of police time, as well as federal agency time that were involved in the search for Kelsey is inexcusable in my book. And guess what? Verizon had been invited to the hearing also, and were invited to give a response to the proposed new legislature. I'm pleased to inform the committee that Verizon Wireless supports and endorses this important legislation. Oh, how nice of them. It took them to be up in front of the House to actually offer some support to the Smiths. But, like the Smiths, and like me, and probably yourselves by now, the representatives wanted to know why Verizon had been so contentious when the Smith family had been so desperate for help. And so... I'd like to ask Mr. McDermott then why you did not respond when the Smiths asked you to respond. Mr. McDermott? Mr. Chair, uh, Senator Pretner-Solon, I'm not uh, prepared, nor can I answer any questions involving the Kelsey Smith matter. After all this time, the Smiths, and now the politicians, were still none the wiser as to why Verizon had been so difficult and belligerent in helping find the location of Kelsey. And, sadly, to this day, Verizon still remained tight-lipped and evasive. The Smiths have never had a definitive answer. But their bill was garnering support and attention. Oh, even though Greg and Missy had received a plethora of affirmations in support of their bill, they were under no illusion of how hard it can be to get a bill passed. How often infighting amongst warring political parties stymies the progress of a bill, and how a bill may have to be represented many times before being passed into law. And so, when the bill went to the floor in March 2009 for voting, Greg and Missy, whom were present for the vote, would not allow themselves to get their hopes up, stealing themselves for what was inevitable in a bill presented for the first time. We got that passed in one legislative session in Kansas. The fact that it happened and that it happened unanimously was was pretty neat. Basically now, uh, phone companies, in emergency cases, the information could be given out immediately. Hmm. A unanimous passing on its very first introduction. <laughs> Amazing. As lawmakers and friends congratulated and hugged Greg and Missy, the pair clung to each other, crying and laughing, and both sending up a silent prayer to their daughter, whom they knew would be looking down on them and would be so proud of them. So, wow, <laughs> the law has passed. The people of Kansas would now be that little bit safer, 
and the memory of their daughter would live on through the law in her name. They had achieved their mission. So, right now, we should be coming to the end of our story. The law is passed, justice sought, and the cockwomble is behind bars. But, Darksiders, we've still got some way to go. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because Kelsey's story is only just beginning. When the law passed and it happened here in Kansas, it was like, wow, what else could we do? Both Missy and Greg had been heavily involved and integral to the creation of the Kelsey Smith Act, but most especially Greg. His law enforcement background had provided great insight when the bill was being drafted. And, seeing his daughter's name immortalised on state legislature, motivated Greg to once again change careers. This time, he decided to run for office as a state representative. And in 2011, representing District 22 of Kansas, Greg was voted into office by a landslide. But Greg and Missy didn't stop there. Oh no. They set up a foundation in Kelsey's name. The Kelsey Smith Foundation is first and foremost to perpetuate the life of Kelsey Smith. We want people to know who she is. On the other hand, here are some things that you can do to keep yourself safer. There are a lot of different training methods out there on how to fight back once you find yourself in this situation. We're trying to teach people how not to even have to be reactive. Through the foundation, Missy and Greg began going to schools around Kansas, delivering safety awareness seminars to children. They also held seminars and training courses for parents to help implement safeguarding measures to protect their children. Their courses became so popular that the schools in other states began requesting their services. And soon, Greg and Missy were flying all over the country to deliver defence and protection seminars to a wide variety of audiences. But when they visited other states to deliver their seminars, the Smiths also used this opportunity to tell their audience about their ordeal and about the Kelsey Smith Act. Through their work with the Foundation, they felt that something positive, something good, was finally shining through the darkness that had engulfed them since the moment that Kelsey went missing. Like the first rays of sun tiptoeing across the landscape, ebbing the darkness of the night. And the more people that they spoke to, the more they were spreading the word of the Kelsey Smith Act. And people in other states, having attended one of Smith's seminars, began talking to their lawmakers. And before they knew it, word was spreading like wildfire. And lawmakers from other states began contacting the Smiths, asking for their input, wanting to change the law in their state. It was overwhelming and incredible for the Smiths. To pass a law in one state is a triumph. To be asked to pass the law in other states, facing the same uphill battle of trying to drum up support and trying to outface the opposition and naysayers, was a monumental task. 
but they knew. They also had the human story that a bill often needs to get it pushed over legislative lines. And so, the Smiths found themselves flying all over the country, not just for the foundation, but now also to change the law in other states. And with each state that they visited, each House and Senate they spoke before, each lawmaker they drummed up support from, they felt they were slowly turning the tide of support on a national scale. For even though they had the human story to help push the bill in each state over the line, the bill also had one other added advantage. Not only could Kelsey's law save lives, but it cost the taxpayer nothing. <laughs> there are not many times a legislator can pass a law that will save lives and will not cost a single cent. But that is the truth in Kelsey's law. Because mobile phone companies have moved over to digital technology from analogue, they already have the capability in place to ping the location of mobile phones. And soon the law, Kelsey's law, was making traction across the country. In 2010, New Jersey, Nebraska, Minnesota and New Hampshire all passed the Kelsey Smith Act. And by 2013, a further 13 states had adopted the law. Oklahoma law enforcement may soon have an important tool to help in such crimes, thanks to a Kansas mother who's using her heartbreak to help us. If we can save just one child here in Rhode Island, or if we can locate uh, one child here in Rhode Island, it's uh, the, the legislation has done its job. Today we're here to unveil legislation that we have recently introduced in Albany. It's known as the Kelsey Smith Act in New York. It would enable police more immediately to apply... Kelsey's law was literally sweeping the nation, state by state. And the Smiths could not have been more proud of the legacy that their daughter's name was embedding across the country. But one day, in 2013, US Representative Kevin Yoda from Kansas approached the Smiths and told them, he wanted to take their bill, the Kelsey Smith Act, all the way to the White House. He wanted to federalize the law. The bottom line is current federal law says that cell phone providers may provide that information. It doesn't say they shall provide that Yoda had seen a gap in the federal law, and Kelsey's law, which was sweeping the nation, might just be the plug hole to close this gap so that all telecom companies could not fail another soul the way the Smiths and Kelsey had been failed. As the law was gathering so much support at state level, there was an overwhelming amount of support in Washington for the bill to be federalised. And so, in late 2013, Yoda presented the bill to the House in Washington, D.C. And... To be quite honest, knowing we had the supermajority, we knew that that was going to be a tough um, number to overcome. So we weren't really... I don't know that I expected it to pass hopeful, 
but that's a big number to have to get to. So um, when it didn't pass, I just said to Congressman Yoder, that's okay. I like D.C. I'll gives me another trip back. Hmm. With all that support, why did it fail? I hear you ask. Well, because an individual's information is protected under the Fourth Amendment rights. Which, for those of my listeners not from the USA, the Fourth Amendment protects the rights of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And telecommunication companies are required to keep such information safe from both the public and the government. So, in other words, federalising telecom companies to release people's information was a breach of the Fourth Amendment. However, this was not the intention behind the Kelsey Smith law. And this isn't an unreasonable search. Again, we're not getting data, we're not getting pictures, um, we're not getting who you've called. It's just simply, where's the device, where's the person at? Uh, it's the same thing, if somebody goes missing when you're a police officer, you go to the last known location, you start knocking on doors and showing the pictures, say, have you seen this person? Why not ask the one witness that knows where that person was last? The phone. So, under Kelsey's law, there was no breach of the Fourth Amendment. No personal information would be released, only location information, and this information is only to be released in the event that a person is deemed at risk or in danger. Even though the Smiths and Yoda had pressed upon the House that the law didn't breach the Fourth Amendment, there were also further concerns that the bill could potentially lead to an improper use by recipients of the data, and hence the bill failed to be enacted into federal law. But as you've just heard Missy say, she likes Washington and she'll be back pushing for Kelsey's law. And she was. The bill was reintroduced in 2016, but once again the potential for data to be misused prevented the law from passing. But this was not going to deter the Smiths. <laughs> oh my goodness, no. And so, in 2019, Kelsey's Law was presented again to Washington. The Smiths believe the information is limited enough to address any concerns. They're hopeful this year their daughter's bill will finally become federal law. I just want to get it done. <laughs> I mean, it would be a relief. Well, I'm sure it will be a relief for the Smiths. They have now been trying to change the law for 12 years. But did the law pass? Hmm. Sadly, no. It was once again voted down due to concerns over misuse of data and breaching of Fourth Amendment rights. Hmm. However... I can tell you that during the 12 years since Kelsey's law first came into fruition in Kansas in 2009, not once has Kelsey's law ever been in breach of the Fourth Amendment or her data misused. It has, however, helped many, many people. 
across the United States. It's used in ways we had not even thought of. There was an elderly gentleman who had had a stroke and could only call his wife and couldn't communicate where he was, and they used Kelsey's Law to find him in time to get him the medical attention he needed. So, even though the government has failed to federalise the Act and make it a national law, I can tell you that the Smiths have slowly and dogmatically eked the law out across America. The government won't federalise the law? <laughs> no worries. The Smiths will get it passed in every state by themselves. As of the airing of this podcast in March 2021, Kelsey's law has passed in 28 states, with Montana passing the law just this year in February 2021. The bill has even crossed country lines and has been presented in the province of Alberta, Canada. Currently, the bill has been introduced and is waiting to go to the floor in Massachusetts, New York, South Carolina, Georgia and Oklahoma. The bill was introduced in Arizona, New Mexico, Michigan and Vermont, but sadly failed to pass. The Smiths are in contact with 12 other state representatives from Maine, North Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio, Texas, California, Alaska and Idaho in a bid to get the law passed in those respective states. The only states that the Smiths haven't been able to make contact with lawmakers are in Connecticut and Maryland. And I know I have listeners from those states. So, if you're from either Connecticut or Maryland, and you're in favour of this law passing in your state, can I ask that you reach out to your local lawmakers or the Smith family, whom can be found via the Kelsey Smith Foundation page at kelseyarmy.org and help get this life-saving law passed in your state. As true crime podcast listeners, we are so used to hearing stories whereby the police pinged the phone of a perpetrator or a victim in order to find them. It is so commonplace to us now that since the onset of the mass use of mobile phones, it is hard to remember that at one time, the police did not have this readily available functionality. But this commonplace law enforcement action of pinging a phone, used worldwide in crime-fighting and investigations today, was born of the tragic death of one 18-year-old girl and the dogmatic tenacity of her two bereaved parents, whom, when they couldn't get help, support or answers from their daughter's mobile phone provider, went on to change the law to ensure that no one else has to suffer the four days of agonising hell that they did. And to give us all another layer of protection against that predatory layer of society that lurks ever threateningly around us. That's why we do what we do. We don't want another parent to feel that pain. There's a hole there that can never, ever be filled. It just, it's empty every day. 
She had a passion about everything she did. If it was her music or if it was being with her friends, whatever it was, she threw everything she had into it. She was pretty special. When I look back and think about it, I've never seen anybody pack so much life into 18 years. I don't know anybody else who was able to do it. I think Kelsey, being the type of person she was, would have probably gotten this law passed in all 50 states already. She um, would not have been as patient as her father and I have been regarding getting this law passed. I think she's very proud of us. Um, I think she's proud of our entire family. I hope you liked today's story, Kelsey's story, a story that is still ongoing to this day and will continue to go on thanks to the unyielding determination of her parents, Greg and Missy Smith, whom were courageous in the face of tragedy and persevered in their pursuit of changing the law that now allows law enforcement to target perpetrators and victims swiftly after their own daughter was so tragically targeted, leaving them to suffer through four days of hell. Now we're on to that part of the show where I give my thanks. I've got a few different kind of thanks to give. Firstly, have you heard of Podfluence? Well, if you haven't, you really should. It is one of the most influential podcast reviewers out there, and each week they review a different true crime podcast. And my little podcast got reviewed last week, and I have to say, I'm still blushing. I always use Podfluence when I'm on the hunt for a new true crime podcast to binge. So if you're on the hunt for a new true crime podcast, why don't you check them out? Just look at podfluence.co. That's P-O-D-F-L-U-E-N-C-E dot C-O. I would also like to thank Lyndon for his five-star review. I hope that today's story pulled you in again. <laughs> I'm very flattered by Lyndon's review because he actually has a podcast of his own, which I highly recommend. It is well-crafted bite-sized true crime stories, so it's perfect to squeeze in an episode on your lunch break. I personally like to listen to Lyndon as I'm going to bed. It is a great bedtime accompaniment for all us true crime fans that fall asleep much more quickly listening to the dark and the macabre than we do to white noise or mating whale calls. So, please, make sure to check out Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. And... Lastly, we're at that point in the week where I am probably requesting an arms deal in Swahili rather than thanking and welcoming listeners from their respective countries. So, this week, I'd like to thank Spain, Hola y Gracias, and North Macedonia, Stravo y Plagodaram. And in fact, thank you all for continuing to listen to my little podcast and for supporting, following and reviewing me along this journey. And that reminds me, if you like this story or this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review at iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
you would be making one little podcaster in the last throes of lockdown who is chomping at the bit to be able to go back to the pub and meet up with friends. Very happy. And don't forget to come join me on Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Dark Side. Come and have a chat. So, on that note, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. <laughs>